invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, I'll be reading from verse 18 through verse 31. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, your word is holy, true, pure, It is for our instruction, and we ask that you would use it to that end. You would accomplish every purpose for which you have given it. Lord, I ask you that you would illumine our hearts to understand the words in front of us, how they apply to our life, and Lord, you would empower us to live how you want us to live as a result of hearing the truths of this passage. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. should come as no surprise that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about God. And therefore, the book of Exodus is about God. And therefore, this passage is about God. Even as we come to some head-scratching and difficult portions of the book of Exodus that are contained in this text... We have to conclude at least that they teach us something about God 
and therefore our response to him as he's revealed himself to us. In a sense, you could think of the Bible this way. The Bible presents to us, here is who God is. Here is what God says. Here is what God has done. Here is what God is doing. Here is what God will do. And so, here's how you should respond. And when you let the Word of God address you, without running from it, you find there are some amazing truths that are revealed about God contained in this book. He's wonderful. He's amazing. He's terrifying. He's mysterious and mystifying. He's merciful and good. He's just and punishing. He's present, and he reveals himself to be the kind of God that sometimes we're not sure if we want to be present with him. This kind of text makes us deal with the real God as he's really revealed himself to us. Every page of Scripture is there for our instruction and our edification And of course, this one, which contains a story that you may not understand and a truth that you may not like, is there to teach us something that we need to believe and accept. So as we come to this portion of Exodus, we need to learn about our God. And as we learn about him, we need to see how we're to respond. And the responses will be that of obedience, awe, fear, faith, worship, As we work through this, we'll break it down into paragraphs, and as we go through each paragraph, we'll discover something about what God has revealed himself to be, and we'll see what the response is required of us. So first, we'll learn that God is patient, that God is encouraging, and God is present with us, and so we need to obey him. This is a reality that we have to reckon with, and we looked at this last week in the book of Exodus, that God calls inadequate, weak people for difficult jobs. We have a God who knows our weaknesses, and yet he still calls us to tasks that are beyond us precisely so that his power can be made perfect in our weakness. We get to be vessels through which the power of God is manifest. We're weak vessels. We're clay pots. And God uses us nonetheless. We know that we're weak. We know that we're inadequate. But being weak is not the same thing as being disobedient. We may be weak and we can acknowledge that. God knows it. We can fully acknowledge our limited strength. But that does not relinquish us of the responsibility we have to trust God and to obey him. And that's what Moses had to do. And that's what we find here in this section where Moses has just been summoned by God from the burning bush to a task that he was woefully inadequate for to deliver the people of Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Remember, Moses was a man who was raised in Egypt and he fled Egypt in exile. He became a sojourner in the land of Midian. He got attached to Jethro, married one of his daughters, became a shepherd of Jethro's sheep, 
And now, 40 years after Moses has left Egypt, after he fled because he had murdered an Egyptian and was rejected by his fellow Hebrews, now he has to deal with the God of the unquenchable fire. And this God has called Moses to a task that Moses doesn't really want to do. And as you read through chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus, you see Moses tries every which way to get out of this task. And he's unsuccessful at the end because God knows who he's calling, and the conversation effectively ends in chapter 4, verse 17, taking your hand the staff with which you will do the signs. End of conversation. I don't know if at that point the flame goes out and God disappears and Moses is left with nothing but the directions that he's been given. But the next we find Moses, this man who's been so convinced of his inadequacies, so concerned that he was not going to be effective in Egypt. Now we see a man who is ready to take a step of faith, a step of obedience. Moses made a poor showing in his conversation with God. Pretty much every thing God put forth to him, Moses responded with some way that he did not fit the bill for what God was assigning him. You don't really get an impressive view of Moses from reading chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4 of Exodus. But I think in Chapter 4, verse 18, there's a slight turn of corner here because conversation is over with God and Moses gets to work. He goes to Jethro, his father-in-law, the one he was really dependent on, and courteously asks permission from Jethro to go back, he says in verse 18, to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. I take this as a a first step of obedience from Moses. That he's now finally responding to God in the way that he needs to respond. He doesn't do everything at once. Indeed, it's impossible. He can't go and deliver the Israelites all at once. But this is the first step, and it's an appropriate one. As Moses goes to his father-in-law, Jethro, the conversation's a little bit amusing because Moses seems to leave out a pretty essential part of what he's going to Egypt to do. He doesn't tell Jethro, I'm going to deliver uh, about two million people out of slavery from one of the world's most powerful men. Uh, You may find that if you were given that task that Moses had and you had to tell somebody what you were going to do, you wouldn't necessarily share all the details because you don't want to be put in an insane asylum. So it's understandable that Moses kind of scales back what he's telling to Jethro. He doesn't give him the full truth, but he does tell, I think, the truth that he is going back to see his brothers in Egypt, to see whether they are still alive. The phrase, whether they're still alive, is likely a a kind of an idiomatic expression to see how they're doing. The last time he saw them, 40 years ago, they were not doing well. They were severely oppressed. And so to question whether they're still alive is, in one sense, a legitimate question. But he knows they're still alive, so he wants to go back and see how they're doing, he says to Jethro. But I don't take this as only uh, scaling back of the information he gives to Jethro. I think we see here a, a bit of a, a flip in Moses' heart. Something is rekindled in him. When you look back at chapter 2, verse 11, it describes the moment that Moses had grown up, knowing that he's a Hebrew, and he goes out, it says, to his people and looked on their burdens. 
And when he saw that, that's when he took action to go against the Egyptian, and that's when he went to go break up the fight between the Hebrews. And now here in chapter 4, verse 18, you have Moses asking permission from his father-in-law to go to his brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive, to see how they're doing. Again, it seems as though something has been rekindled in Moses, a willingness to identify with his people, to go back and be a part of what is going on there. And Jethro gives his blessing and tells him to go in peace. This is a big step for Moses. It's not everything that he's called on to do. And we'll find out later that there's something severely lacking in actually his obedience to the Lord. But it is an act of obedience at this point. He's taking the first step in the right direction. It's a great lesson for us that as we consider the ways in which God has summoned us to live, how he calls us to be, it's not necessarily that we live a whole lifetime of obedience all at once, but we certainly are called to take that step in the right direction of obedience. And as Moses does that, it says in verse 19 that the Lord speaks to Moses again. He says, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. God speaks to Moses as he begins the step of obedience. Then IV translates it as, and the Lord had said to Moses, which seems to put the timing of when God speaks to Moses at a previous point prior to him going to see Jethro. That's not the most natural way to translate it or the natural way to take it. I take it as this is subsequent to Moses going to Jethro. And so it's the Lord giving Moses a word of encouragement as he prepares to go to Egypt. He reminds him or commands him again to go back to Egypt. And then he also tells him the reason why he can go now. For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Why does God say this to Moses? Why does he inform him of the status of those men? Recall after Moses had killed an Egyptian, the thing was discovered, Pharaoh heard of it, and he sought to kill Moses. So Moses goes into exile. So this was a substantial part of Moses' life. And if you think about Moses heading back to Egypt, I'm sure that he would delight in the fact that there are not wanted signs all over Egypt with his face on them. And God informs him that there's no longer a price on his head. Everybody who had sought his life has died. What an encouraging word from God for Moses to let him know that that era is done with. A new page is being turned to. It's a new leaf in Moses' book, and he gets to go to Egypt, in a sense, with a clean slate. Moses, as he takes the step of obedience, gets a boost from the Lord, an encouragement. It's also an indication of the great deliverance that God is going to bring. Those who sought Moses' life are dead. There's a new Pharaoh that Moses will have to deal with, and it won't be easy, but it reminds Moses that God is sovereign, that God is leading this exodus. This new era has begun. When Moses responds in verse 20, he gets his wife, his sons, puts them on a donkey, and heads back to the land of Egypt. And then notice that Moses takes the staff of God in his hand exactly what God instructed him to do in verse 17, take your, in your hand this staff. 
That staff was a, an emblem of the power and presence of God. It was the staff that God commanded Moses to throw on the ground. It turned into a serpent, and Moses had to pick it up by the tail, and it turned back into a staff. It was a reminder that God was going to be with Moses as he goes. The realities of God in this paragraph are really delightful for us. We see three things about God here. God is patient, first of all. God is patient. Do you see the patience of God in this? Moses has been dragging his feet. He's been not just dragging them, he's been trying not to go to Egypt. But the Lord didn't close the door on him. The Lord was patient. He had the conversation with him, and here Moses is now ready to obey. God had been dealing with a man who didn't want to go, but God got him to go. The Lord doesn't give up on us at our first no to him. He is patient with us. It's not good that we say no to him. It's not good that we indicate some sort of resistance to his will, but that doesn't mean that his patience is immediately dried up, nor does it mean that he's done with us. It says in Romans chapter 2, 4 that, The Lord is patient with us, and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So as Moses was given this time with God to figure out what God's calling is and what's expected of him, and even while Moses is resistant, God is patient, and that patience pays off effectively as Moses finally repents and is willing to go in the direction that God wants him to go. I wonder if you've ever experienced that patience of God where you've seen that though you've been reluctant and you've been stubborn, God hasn't stopped. He's been patient with you. Don't wear out his patience. Let it have its effect, which is meant to lead you to repentance, to go on the path that he desires you to go on. God is patient. He's also encouraging. And you see God's encouragement to Moses As Moses takes that step of obedience, God tells him, all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Does not God's word address us at the right time in the right way? Doesn't he speak to us effectively? Some time ago, I was feeling rather discouraged, uh, feeling pressed in through a number of circumstances. And really didn't know where to go or what to do and just kind of felt a bit lost. And I opened God's word to a, a text that's been familiar to me and I read Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And the Lord used that truth to lift me up out of my discouragement that all the circumstances that I was going through in those moments were already written down by God in his book. He was aware of them. He knew them. He knew what was happening. And he's a gracious God, full of mercy and kindness. He did not intend them for my downfall, but for my good. It was the perfect truth for me. The day of my discouragement was known to God, and he used his word to speak an encouraging word to me. 
wonder if you've ever had that, where God's word is used by him to encourage you in the path that you should go, lift you up, to put you on the path of obedience. Oh, he, do, he does that. He's also present with us. This passage reveals he's pe- present with us. With all the daunting tasks ahead of Moses, God gave him that staff, an emblem of the presence and power of God. Moses' shepherd staff, now called the staff of God. Reminds me of Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. At the beginning of this journey for Moses, there's an effective promise, a tangible element of the presence of God. He promises us to be with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, God is present. So what's our response to a patient, encouraging, present God? We obey him. We take that step of obedience. We take the one that you know is before you. You know what he's revealed for you in your word and in his word, and you take that step. If you have a God who's been patient with you, a God who will encourage you, a God who will be present with you. text goes on. So secondly, we'll learn more about the Lord. We'll learn that God is sovereign and protective, and our response needs to be that we are in awe of him. God is sovereign and protective, so be in awe of him. There ought to be moments in our life when we are amazed at God. In our sober considerations of who he is, we stand amazed at who he is. And this amazement could be something like seeing a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise. We see the palette of God's artistry just unparalleled by any human artist. That should amaze us, and we stand in awe of God and his creativity. But there's another kind of amazement that can come to us about our God. And this is the kind of amazement that you might have if you were standing watching perhaps on a safari and you see at a riverbank a number of uh, large beasts taking drink there. And all of a sudden, this enormous crocodile comes out of the water and clamps on the neck of one of those beasts and blood spurts everywhere and that beast is in the mouth of its uh, foe. And you stand looking at that, compelled to turn away because it's so gruesome, and yet you keep on watching because there's so much power there. You see the sheer power. You don't want to get too close, and you might shudder at what you see. There are times when we come across passages in the Bible that might be like us seeing a crocodile clamp on the neck of its prey. And we might shudder at the sight. This section, verses 21 through 23, may be one of those moments where we see God come out of the water and clamp down on his prey. God says he will harden the heart of Pharaoh. He says he will kill his firstborn son. Those are hard truths to swallow. The path ahead for Moses will be one where he will become increasingly acquainted with the God who has called him. 
You'll get to know God in His ways increasingly as time goes on. And here he receives further instruction from God about what Moses is to do and what God is going to do during the time in Egypt. What Moses is going to do is straightforward. God tells Moses that he is going to go back to Egypt and that he needs to see that he does the miracles that he has put in his power. That's all Moses really is called to do, to go to Egypt, to do what God has given him to do. Moses will act a bit as a waiter who serves up the meal that the chef has prepared, God being the chef. God has put certain things in Moses' power, and he is to do them in the presence of Pharaoh to show the power of God. That's what Moses is called to do. What God will do will reach much deeper. God says, then to verse 21, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This introduces to us a theme that will run through a large chunk of Exodus. God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So this is not the last time that we'll look at this or consider it or have something to say about it. This is not all that needs to be said about it, but we'll say something at this point. It's a concept that will go on, and you'll find as you study Exodus that God will harden Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh will harden his own heart, and then there will be times where the text just says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without saying who did it. The word harden basically means to strengthen, and it can be used in a positive sense, but in this sense it's clearly negative in that the heart of Pharaoh will become hard like stone, resistant to what God says to Pharaoh. It means to make one resistant to accepting a message or to change one's direction. Pharaoh will be obstinate, stubborn in his position, unwilling to yield to God. And what God is saying here, and it is crystal clear, God is saying before he ever has one word with Pharaoh directly, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is interesting because the very thing that Moses is supposed to do in verse 22 is to tell Pharaoh, let my son go. And yet the thing that God is doing is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And you come to a passage like this and you think, well, which is it, God? Do you want Pharaoh to let the people go, or do you not want him to let them go? Because you say, tell them, let the people go, and then you say you're going to harden his heart so he won't let them go. And you have this tension that feels like it's just going to burst your mind. What is God doing? Mind-bending. Consider poor Moses being told that he is to go to speak to this world leader and say, let the people go. And now he's being told by God that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go. And Moses must be thinking, what in the world is happening here? How do I do that? You want me to tell them, let them go, but you're not going to let them go? What is going on? It calls into question for us the fairness of God, his righteousness. We wonder, how can this be? How can he work in the 
heart of Pharaoh this way to make him resistant to his will? We can't answer all of the questions that we'd like to have answered. But we can observe some sheer facts here that make us stand in awe of God. One of the facts is that God is not saying that he will soften Pharaoh's heart. He says he's going to harden it. Yes, Pharaoh has said that he's going to require a strong hand to compel the people to go. God declares that he will harden it so that the people won't be let go. It's important to also observe that this happens before Moses is even in Egypt. God is claiming what he is going to do before Moses even gets into Egypt. This is really to teach Moses and then to teach Pharaoh that God is in control, that God is in charge. Pharaoh would have considered himself to be a son of a God, to have extreme power and capacity in his role as Pharaoh. And God is going to prove through a relentless attack upon Pharaoh and his people that no, God is in charge. God is the ultimate author of all the events that are going to happen in Egypt. He is unmistakably in charge. God controls Pharaoh, not Pharaoh. This is a lesson to us. It's a sobering lesson. Who is in charge of all things? Who is the one who controls all things? And we would never say that God is the author of sin, but God is the author of this universe. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning. Who is in control? Not Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh who considers himself to be a son of a God. Not kings. Not angels. Not demons. Not man. Not Satan. Not nature. Not presidents. Not governments. Not nations, not oil companies, not climate change activists, not communists, not democracies, not conservatives, not liberals, not philosophies, not mathematics, not scientists, not sociologists, not pharaohs, not Hitlers, not Pol Pot, not Stalins, not Maos, not Trumps, not Bidens, not Congress, not governors. Our God is in control. He's the one ultimately in charge of this world, and he is willing to take charge to such a degree that he will say, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not let the people go. He is sovereign. And his sovereignty confronts some of our sensibilities. It makes us uncomfortable at times. And again, not that we have all the answers or even we've stated all that needs to be said, but at least we need to accept that God is in control from beginning to end. The reason God is going to do this is illuminated for us in, a, in the next verse, verse 22. It's still instructing Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. God now informs Moses, who is supposed to inform Pharaoh, that Israel is God's firstborn son. That's quite a statement. The firstborn son was the son of preeminence. The 
chosen son who would really lead the family, receive a double portion. You see something of the nature of a firstborn son back in Genesis with Joseph. Joseph was not born first, but he was treated by his father, Jacob, as the firstborn. He received, in a sense, that preeminent portion, that place of fondness and affection from his father. It was a place of favoritism. It was the place where the firstborn son was chosen to be above all others. And here God is saying, Israel, this nation, this group of people who are slaves in Egypt, who are oppressed, are the delight of God's eye, are the favored ones that God has looked upon. God cares about them, and he has this intimate relationship with them that was to be marked on the human side by worship and on the divine side by protection and deliverance. What brought Israel into this relationship with God? How did they become this premier people? Deuteronomy tells us, chapter 7, that it wasn't because of anything good in them. It wasn't because they were more numerous or anything, but it was because God chose them to set his love upon them. That's the answer. It was God's choice. And because he has chosen to put his affection on them and his protection on them, he is going to deal with anybody who is opposed to them. And Pharaoh in Egypt has clearly proven themselves to be a people who have opposed them. They have oppressed them for hundreds of years, placed them in slavery. And now as God goes to earn the ultimate victory over Pharaoh, he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart to such a degree that Pharaoh won't let the people go so that it will be proven that God is the one who extracts his people from Egypt rather than Pharaoh being the one saying, fine, that's okay, go. God will prove his ultimate sovereignty and protection as those things converge upon his people, Israel. Again, there's much revealed here about our God, what he is like. One commentator says it this way. The Bible believes in a God who is really and truly God. It's a wonderful way to describe it. We don't try to concoct a God in our own image. We accept him as he really is. And who he really is is not a tameable God, not necessarily a comfortable God, not a God that we like everything about it initially, But he is who he is, and he will be what he will be, and we do not make him in our own image, and we accept him for who he is. But as we accept him for who he is, we realize that he wields his sovereign power for the good of those whom he has chosen. He is protective as well as sovereign. God is going to flex his sovereign muscle over Pharaoh because he is a protecting God over his firstborn son. This idea of sonship is an interesting theme through the Bible because you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he's called the only Son of God. Then we find that for those who are in Christ, we are adopted into the family of God and we are called his children. And so we receive, because of Christ, the wielding of God's sovereignty for our protection. This is what we see in Romans chapter 8. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
And then in chapter 8, verse 28, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then to see just how much God wields his sovereign power for those who belong to him, it goes on to say in Romans 8, 38 through 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, in all of his sovereign power, wields it toward us to protect his children, to show his loving care for us. He's going to do that for Israel in Egypt, and it will mean the downfall of Israel's enemies. Won't we see that in our own life? Any who oppose God's people... Any who belong to him, who are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who oppose God's people will find to be opposing God himself. And they will face his wrath. Our response to this, again, I take is to accept who God is and to be in awe of him rather than try to conform him to our own image. We accept that he is sovereign. We accept that he is protecting And we stand in awe of our great God. The text moves on to reveal to us that God is also uncompromising. And he is relenting. And so we ought to fear him. And now comes this strange portion. And I think it's fair to say it's strange. That's probably the word that went through your mind as you read it or as you've read it before, verses 24 through 26. It's a strange event. We don't have too much time to deal with it, thankfully. So we'll go through it with some speed. Let's get the picture of what's happening here. Moses has been summoned by God to go to Egypt. Moses has taken that step to go And now, as he's on the way with his family, God seeks to put him to death. They stop at a lodging place, which would have been a place of shelter during a travel. There he is with his family, and God meets him and sought to put him to death. And then, Moses' wife, Zipporah, rises to action, takes a flint knife, circumcises her son, takes the foreskin, touches it to Moses' feet, and then says this enigmatic phrase, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Which I doubt any wife in this room has ever said to her husband. And then, God let Moses alone. So what is going on here? What are we to learn from this? Let's deal with the facts first. In this mysterious story, here are the facts as I understand them. And there's some ambiguity even here. Uh, The name of Moses isn't used. It's a pronoun him, but it most likely applies to Moses. And so I take it that way. Fact number one is that God sought to put Moses to death. God sought to put Moses to death. Fact number two, Moses' son was not circumcised. Fact number three, 
Zipporah circumcised Moses' son. Fact four, Zipporah touched Moses' feet with the foreskin. Fact five, Zipporah said Moses was her husband through blood because of the circumcision. Fact six, God did not kill Moses. Now, if you read between the lines a bit, and it gets a little shady to do that, but we might understand that as God seeks to kill Moses, you might take that in human terms, and you might say, well, somebody tried to kill that person, and you're not sure whether it'll be successful or unsuccessful. Or you might just use it in modern vernacular, I tried to do this, and you're not sure whether you're going to be successful or not. But when God tries to do something, he's always able to do it if he wants to do it. It's not like God gets halfway into a process and finds, oh, I got the wrong tactic here. Not going to work. Furthermore, it seems as though Moses is incapacitated during this time. We're not entirely sure how God sought to put him to death. It may have been some sudden illness that he had, or he may have had to wrestle with an angel like Jacob did, But one way or another, Moses is not the one doing the circumcision, so it seems as though he's incapacitated during this time. His wife, however, seems wise enough to understand what will solve this problem, and what will solve the problem is circumcision of their son. And she also seems to realize that that circumcision in some way needs to be applied to Moses in order for Moses to be covered. What conclusions can we draw? The first one would be that Moses had not circumcised his son as he ought to have done. This is quite clear. In Genesis 17, 9 through 14, God speaks to Abraham and tells him this, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It is clear that for those who were going to inherit those blessings from Abraham, they were to receive the covenant of circumcision. Moses' son was not circumcised. The mission that Moses was on was a fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. You see this throughout the whole book of Exodus. God's already revealed himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it says that when God looked at the groanings of the people of Israel in chapter 2, verse 24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And so as Moses, who is this one to be a deliverer of the people who are going to benefit from the promises of Abraham, has not fulfilled the obligation of the covenant, 
God seeks to put him to death because God is uncompromising in his covenant terms. God is uncompromising in his covenant terms. That's really significant. Somehow or other, Zipporah understands this. Perhaps Moses was able to communicate, or maybe she just knew. And so she circumcises her son and takes that circumcision and applies it to Moses so that Moses is really covered with the blood of his son's circumcision, which he ought to have done previously. And in Zipporah's actions, God sees this and leaves Moses alone. Zipporah basically recognizes Moses would have been dead except for this circumcision, and so she basically calls him, now you're my husband through this blood of circumcision. That's the only reason their marriage continues. This would be a sobering wake-up call to Moses that he needs to take God's covenant standards seriously. God is uncompromising regarding his covenant. One commentator says, Moses can argue, pout, whine, and hold his breath about going to Egypt, and God will deal patiently with him. But circumcision is another matter. Failure to circumcise meets with swift punishment. There are certain terms we cannot mess around with. The New Testament makes clear we, are not, we don't need to be circumcised to inherit the blessings of God. But the terms of God's covenant are this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you do not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not come to God covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, you have no access to God and he will turn into your foe instead of your friend. Those Those are the terms of the covenant we live under, the new covenant. You have Jesus and belief in him or you have condemnation. That is it. And if you do not come to God covered in the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him, you'll find God is your foe. God is uncompromising. And yet we also see God is a relenting God. Because somebody who has sinned and disobeyed finds that he is not killed. Why? Because he's covered with the blood of another. We who are sinners in this room find that though God is uncompromising on the terms of the covenant, and we who are sinners deserve God's wrath rightly, are not punished because we've been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. God relents from the wrath that we rightly deserve when we come to faith in Christ. God relents. So what's our response? Well, we are to live in fear of God, not in terror of him, but recognizing that he is the one who matters. Moses was going to Egypt, perhaps with a freedom now, knowing that the men who sought his life were not alive any longer, but he needed to come to terms that there was an uncompromising God who was against him until he came to terms with his covenant. And so we need to live with a right fear of God. So we're to be in awe of God, stand amazed, live in fear of him. Finally, and very, very briefly, as Moses moves on from that, he meets Aaron at God's instruction. And in this encounter, we find that God is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And they meet, 
and they kiss, which would be just a sign of affectionate greeting. They haven't seen each other in likely a long time. Lots to catch up on, but what they catch up on is Moses telling Aaron all the words of the Lord. And this all comes in direct fulfillment of what God had said. Recall as Moses was so against the plan of God, God said, isn't there Aaron, your brother? Back in chapter 4, verse 14, God provided Aaron, and here we see how that comes to pass. God was faithful to do what he said, that he would provide Aaron, and Moses would put the words in Aaron's mouth, and Aaron would speak them. The reality of God is that he is faithful. He keeps his word. He does what he says he will do. As Aaron and Moses go into Egypt and meet the elders, the elders see the signs, and it says in verse 31, the people believed, which is exactly what God said in chapter 3, verse 18. They will listen to your voice. God was faithful. He did what he said he would do. He kept his word. Very simply, we take from that, God has promised us promises that are unassailable, and he will keep his word to the very end. And so what do we do? Well, verse 31, it says the people believed, and when they hear about the mercy of God and seeing their affliction, they bow their heads and worshiped. It comes down to that. For all that God is and does, all that he demands of us, yes, we take steps of obedience, and yes, he does things through us, but when we come to the end of it, we realize that God is a merciful and faithful God. And what is our response? We trust him and we worship him. That's our response. God is sovereign. God is protective. God is patient. God is encouraging. God is faithful. God is uncompromising. God is relenting. We need to worship him. We need to believe him. That's what he demands of us. Let's pray. Father, you are you are sovereign over all things. And yet in your sovereignty, you've looked on us with compassion. And for those who are in Christ, you've chosen us to belong to you, to be called your people, to be treated as belonging to Christ, and to receive all the benefits. Oh, Father, you are wonderful in your grace and in your kindness. Wonderful in your deliverance that you would bring salvation to us in Christ Jesus and deliver us from sin. You're wonderful in your power that you would oppose our enemies. You're wonderful in your patience that you would not return to us what is due immediately, but you give us time to repent. You're wonderful in your faithfulness. You keep all of your words. Not one of them falls to the ground. And so, Lord, help us to respond to you with awe, worship, belief, fear, trust, and obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.